Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing really great. I'm just so excited to talk to Dr. Petrie today. As am I. As am I. This is a special bonus episode. We are talking to Dr. Taylor Petrie, just a little uh, brief introduction. Uh, our relationship with Taylor basically comes through Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. He's the uh, he's actually the editor of that publication and was the one who invited us to be part of the Dialogue podcast network that you hear us talk about every episode. The dude has a doctorate of theology from Harvard Divinity School. Uh, what was your uh, what was your focus there, Taylor? New Testament and early Christianity. New Testament. Okay, sweet. And uh, he is currently the chair of the religion department at Kalamazoo. Is that correct? That's right. And uh, prior to that, you were the director of the Women, Gender, and Sexuality program. He's also got a bunch of books. Yeah, a lot of books. But uh, I'm not going to list all of them. But if you've heard his name before, it's probably... Uh, in relation to uh, a piece that you write a while back, I, it was called Toward a Post-Heterosexual Mormon Theology. That's actually how I got exposed to uh, Taylor's academic work. And it was uh, one of Dialogue's most popular articles, apparently. Uh, that's how I like stumbled upon it myself. Dr. Petrie is kind of a big deal, guys. And uh, we're very lucky to have him. He also wrote a book recently that's uh, coming out next month, is it, Taylor? Yes, a couple weeks called Tabernacles of Clay, and uh, we were hoping to be able to talk a little bit about that uh, with Dr. Petrie today, but before we get into that, first of all, Taylor, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you, and it's been it's been great to get to see both of your work progress and, and uh, get, to, get to know you guys better over this last little time together, too, so thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, just by way of further introduction, Taylor, can you tell us a little bit more about your current academic focus and kind of how you got into pursuing what you are pursuing currently? Yeah, so I started out, as I mentioned, doing uh, New Testament and early Christianity. That's my primary area of training. And I actually did gender studies in New Testament and early Christianity, and it didn't take uh, much pushing to sort of start to think about how the work that I was doing on religion and also the work that I was doing in, in gender studies, uh, what that had to do with my own faith and the tradition that I belong to as a Latter-day Saint. And so I started kind of tinkering around the edges a little bit with some of the ideas that, uh, that were uh, kind of in the air at the time and, and trying to talk through those and uh, uh, ended up kind of starting to write on that topic a little bit. And then just kept thinking, well, I've got one more thing to say. So I'll write that one more article. And then I've got one more thing to say. I'll do that one more thing. And then here we are. And I've just written way too much about this topic now. But uh, I still have more things to say. So stay tuned on, on that as well. But um, yeah, so I, I started, uh, I, I started, and I still work in early New Testament, early Christianity. It's not a field that I've given up. But I transitioned to kind of living in both worlds, in the Mormon studies world, and in the early Christianity world. Uh, and the thing that kind of holds all of my work together is a focus on gender. So in um, 2016, 2017, I had a sabbatical coming up for uh, for um, my my professor position, and I applied to the Women's Studies and Religion program at Harvard Divinity School and uh, uh, with this project, and I kind of pitched it, and I said, okay, well, if they accept it, then I'll write it. But it's a huge long shot because they've only accepted like four men in the history or three, three men, I think, in the history of the program in 40 years. <laughs> I'm never going to get it, you know. And so then I don't have to write it if I don't get it. 
But uh, they said yes. They called me up and they said, yes, uh, we'd love to have you. And, and so I went and spent a year as a visiting professor at Harvard and uh, got to write this book there. So that was, that's the, the background. Great. I had a question about the title of your book. So when I first saw the title, Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism, I thought to myself, oh, that's a reference to our mortal bodies. But then when I got familiar with the substance of your argument, I thought, well, maybe what it is is that um, the Tabernacle of Clay could be the sort of historical contingency of our doctrinal structures and frameworks and how that is also very much a temporary tabernacle of clay. So what exactly does the title of your book mean? <laughs> it hopefully has multiple meanings. It is a reference to 2 Corinthians 5, I think, maybe 4, uh, where Paul refers to the body as a tabernacle of clay. And one of the main arguments in the book is that uh, the way that Latter-day Saints have often thought about gender is in the sense of uh, uh, that it is fluid and malleable. And that comes in contrast to the way that the dominant version of thinking about this is, is that Mormons believe, Latter-day Saints believe in gender fixity and gender essentialism, namely the idea that gender can't change, it's eternal, it's, it's some permanent aspect of oneself. But it turns out that if you actually look closely at the way that the church has been talking about gender in the modern period, that, that you see a lot of fluidity. And so I was looking for that uh, that the kind of image of malleability that clay gives us there and fragility that clay has too. It has both those kind of connotations of something that's being fragile um, as, as a way of thinking about how the church has talked about uh, bodies, how the church has talked about gender. And, and I think you're absolutely right. The sort of doctrines themselves as being malleable and fragile. Did I hear that correctly? That uh, you, you said that Mormonism has, a surprising amount of gender fluidity. That's what I heard. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't think so. And that's why all of our listeners who want to know more about that should read the book. Absolutely. But uh, that doesn't seem to be the, uh, pr even though that's an important part of the book, that doesn't seem to be the primary thesis of the book. Can you say a little bit more about uh, why you wrote this piece and perhaps uh, what, what, uh, what is the primary thesis of the book to you? Well, that's a good question. Um, the, I, I wrote the book in part because uh, I, I, I was feeling really dissatisfied with the way that people were talking about the history of gender and sexuality in the church. And there are a couple of, a couple of shortcomings that I felt that existed. Um, one was that uh, people tended to assume, as I mentioned, that the church has always taught gender essentialism has always taught that gender is an eternal and essential aspect of one's identity and purpose or, or whatever the line from the proclamation is right and that's a powerful lens for for viewing the church's history and uh the idea behind sort of that ahistorical version of church history that the church has never changed its idea is to sort of say well this is an inviolable uh uh, uh teaching right because we've always taught it and uh, so I found that that's not exactly the case. So that was one of the shortcomings of a lot of the, the current research that had existed. The second shortcoming was that people tended to talk about either uh, what's quote unquote called women's history or what's quote unquote called LGBT history as two separate stories for the way that the mm. church 
uh, talking mm. about this. And I said, you know, if we're talking about something like gender and sexuality, we have to tell those stories simultaneously to see how they're in relationship to one another. And, uh, and so I, I, I tried to bring together those two aspects of the story. And the third part of the story that I felt like was missing was that people weren't really thinking about the way that race was a big part of the church's history on gender and sexuality as well. When you look at the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the book starts in the 1940s and, and ends in the, the, the current period. And when you look at what they're saying in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, interracial marriage is the biggest concern that they have about, uh, uh, about racial issues at that time period, which means that race was like a sexualized concept, right? And so mm -hmm. I, I wanted to tell the story of gender and sexuality that paid attention to race as well and saw the way that the, our racial history was really intertwined with, uh, with our story, with our history of sexuality as well. Wow. How does your project differ from Greg Prince's project? Uh, because both of them seem to be like histories rather than constructive theology or contextual theology. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. What, what is, where do you, you think your projects differ? Yeah, I, I, I have so much respect for Greg Prince. He's a brilliant scholar. He's, uh, he's a wonderful human being. And when I found out that he was writing this book after I had been working on mine for about three or four months, I really started <laughs> freaking out. <laughs> uh, and I was very nervous. I was like, oh, no, there are going to be two books on this exact same topic. And um, fortunately, I think that we ended up uh, going in different directions in, in our research and in the kinds of questions that we were asking. And so I think that they are useful conversation partners to put into, into conversation. That's mm -hmm. going to be maybe more for others to sort of tease that out. But uh, some of the things that I mentioned uh, for the sort of uh, a, a history of gender rather than a sort of LGBT history is one way that I think mm -hmm. our books are a little bit different. Of course, the attention to race uh, then that, that comes as a part of that. And... Um, uh, and I think that he and I also operate on a slightly different understanding of the nature of sexuality as well. He's much more in the sort of uh, biological determinist camp, while I'm much more in the cultural construction camp. And I think that that also helps to sort of frame out our uh, the way that we approach the material a little bit as well. So, I, you know, I think we'll need other people to kind of come in and, and do a close comparison of those two works. But, uh, but I think that they're really useful to put in conversation with one another. This whole idea of uh, race being tied into how we view gender and uh, sexuality is, I'll admit, a very, very new concept to me. Can you say a little bit more about that without giving, without giving too much away in the book? Because I do want people to read the book, but like this is, this is just fascinating to me. Sure. Yeah. So um, this is this is drawing on the, the the analysis that I bring to this text is drawing on broader uh, scholarly arguments that are that are scholarly uh, discussions about the intertwining of the history of race and the history of sexuality, um, starting really in the 19th century up uh, up of course through the 20th 20th century American history. And, and the book has some of the bibliography of people who are interested in not just the LDS story but the broader American history of this as mm -hmm. well. But you get things like uh, the scientific, uh, the the scientific uh, racism of the 19th century, and this notion of a kind of lineages and bloodlines, and 
uh, and the sort of uh, uh, purity, purity or essences of the races that are, that, that are there. At the same time that you're also getting the invention of um, sexual identities in the 19th century scientific uh, 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 science of sexuality as well. And so the, the kind of the way that these then play out in popular culture um, ultimately link them together by uh, suggesting that um, racial uh, mixing through uh, through through sex, of course, uh, is um, damaging to the biology, especially of white supremacy, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. so they uh, they're they're really interested in segregation as not simply a kind of social mixing of like we do our thing, right? But they're really worried that when you have social integration that is going to lead to sexual integration and the weakening of the uh, of the of white supremacy essentially and this mm -hmm. is especially true in the case of latter day saints because priesthood is excluded from the descendants of uh, mixed race relationships and so the church is really freaking out that if if uh, interracial marriage becomes a norm then who would be able to hold the priesthood you know within a few generations uh, you know, no American would be able to hold the priesthood because they would all be descended in some ways from these uh, uh, from these impure races. So this notion of a kind of purity of racial lineage and, and the way that Latter-day Saints used to think in terms of racial lineages is a story that, you know, we, we just don't really so much anymore. It's almost disappeared. Oh. Right. Yeah. And but it was the way. I mean, Latter-day Saints say we are we are this pure-blooded of Israel, and there's this pure blood of Cain over here, and there's the you know the descendants of the Book of Mormon peoples here, and we thought in these terms of like a, a racialized society, and that there were all of these sub races, and these sub races had destinies that they were supposed to fulfill, and so on, and that just ultimately gets erased, right? Um, but I try to then just tell the story of how we thought about race in these sexualized terms of, about like prohibiting certain people from marrying uh, and, and that the racial bans on the priesthood and on temple ordinances were, were really about marriage and that they, they had a lot to do with saying who could marry whom. What, what kinds of couples, what kinds of relationships are authorized in the church? And it wasn't just you know, same-sex relationships that weren't authorized. It was interracial relationships that weren't authorized as well. So I, I really want, want people to see the precedent for changing uh, the priesthood isn't, just, isn't unrelated to the precedent for changing teaching, teachings on marriage. Wow. Um, I mean, what I'm hearing is that there is a lot of like when I when I hear people talk about white supremacy or straight supremacy in turn in, in relations to who can hold the priesthood and in relation to who can marry whom. I just keep hearing a lot of uh, issues of identity that seem to be plaguing the uh, the Latter day Saint faith. What I mean to say is that um, these prohibitions on who can marry whom seem to be trying to make sure that certain people, namely white people, straight people, are able to hold the priesthood, are able to run things, are able to have some kind of idea of, as you said, these sub-races and their destinies and stuff. But as soon as we start allowing these privileges to be extended to people of other races, people of other orientations, then the supposedly superior sex, the supposedly superior sexualities and races in essence, lose their sense of self because there's nobody to basically be superior to. So what I'm hearing is that in these conversations about who can marry whom, 
this all comes up this all comes back to what seems to be an issue of identity for people that if all of this for lack of a better word uh mixing happens the purpose or the identity of the i suppose highest race or the highest sexuality or the highest class of people pretty much vanishes so i i kind of see these issues of prohibitions to be an issue of I, of identity like that's that's what i'm hearing as you speak does that make sense that that's ab- that's a great way of putting it and that's that's exactly the argument that there have been these various hierarchies in the way that the church has talked about marriage so racial hierarchies uh, uh hierarchies of sexuality as you've mentioned but of course mm-hmm. the other obvious one is hierarchies of sex between men right. and women too right, right. Uh, one which still operates in in the church in in I think a, a slightly weakened form as as if you compare it to earlier generations, but I, I try to argue that the weakening of uh, the racial restrictions on marriage and the weakening of the um, uh, male female hierarchical uh, expectations as well um, pushes all of the weight of what is then the really bad thing. What is the form of marriage that's really bad? If it's not egalitarian marriages and if it's not interracial marriages, then the really bad one is same-sex marriages. So a lot of the, uh, as the church changes its teachings over this time period, the reason why homosexuality comes to be such a prom takes such a prominent place as a, as a especially dangerous kind of relationship is because they are able to relax the restrictions on interracial marriage and the restrictions on quote unquote patriarchal marriage, the other mm. uh, hierarchical form, right? Mm. Um, so the liberalization that takes place in some areas uh, uh, sort of creates further heightened anxiety in, in others. So my question is, do you think this basically scapegoating strategy, do you think that was an intentional move on the part of our, our leaders? Well, um, that's a good question. It's hard to it's hard to um, diagnose intention necessarily, right? I what I do try to show is that the um, the transitions that are happening in that area are the same things that are happening in other traditions as well. Uh, so our our evangelical and Catholic friends are doing the exact same thing, right? So we have we I, I think that we have to try to understand that. The things that the church is doing aren't necessarily unique. They're sort of a part of a broader culture of change mm-hmm. in these areas. Um, you know, we didn't invent patriarchal marriage or we didn't invent restrictions on, uh, uh, you know, se- or segregation, right? We're a part of a broader culture that expresses those uh, values. Um, and we often sort of relax them as our neighboring uh, uh, co-religionists uh, and, uh, and friends do that as well. So I try to kind of put it in that story. And so then it's less about a kind of intentional, you know, demonization of a particular subgroups and more about sort of the broader cultural conversations that the church is participating in. And I think that's one of the key insights that I got from your book. And I've, I've thought this looking at the evidence before, but about the sort of contingency and dependent nature of our discourse within the, within the church being almost completely, well, I shouldn't say completely dependent because there is flow both ways, but it's very much entangled with this broader discourse in American Christianity as a whole. And what it looks like is our position on LGBT issues isn't really derived from any known fresh revelation that's native to our tradition. It's really somehow 
induced by the surrounding culture for the large for a large part of it. Um, and very similar to what you were saying about interracial, the pro- prohibition against interracial marriage is also very much derived from our surrounding culture, not on any specific revelation here. So, in light of the fact that um, there seems to be no known revelation, at least no known public revelation, that's the foundation of our LGBT stance. Uh, do you think that this could serve as a, as an opening for a conversation around like why is this here and and does it need to be here and can this change? I do think that um, you know that that that's going to be the work of some great people that that take that on. That's not the purpose of this book. I, I think that history is a great destabilizer of the present. Right, we start to see the ways that our own teachings, that our own history, is contingent on a bunch of weird things that happened in the past, right? And so once we understand that a little bit better, I think that it often helps us to sort of see our place in the world and understand our place in the world better. So I'm hoping, I'm hopeful at least that uh, uh, that that, that uh, there can be a, a more sophisticated conversation about why we teach certain things uh, at, at the very least. And there may be really good reasons that we just haven't fully articulated yet. Uh, uh, there may be, you know, reasons of, for people that are smarter than me to, to kind of answer some of the, the problems that, that arise with uh, that, that I try to raise in the history. Um, but I do think that w- we can use the history to better understand at least why we're why we do what we do now yeah yeah and in terms of the history i like how you documented and i think greg prince did this as well and others have done this also documenting the changes the profound changes that we've already had i think some of the changes that we have celebrated even from the highest pulpits in our community are changes that uh, President Kimball would say, well, that will never change. Or, or President Packer, well, that will never change. Like, stuff that we thought would never change has already changed. And I think that's a very profound insight from your work as well. I, I think that many progressives in the church tend to kind of look and say, well, there are two big changes of things that the, nobody thought would ever change, right? Polygamy, right? And and racial restrictions. And then they cha- and then they did, right? And a revelation came, and, and then they did. And those are important moments to look at because revelation is the driving uh, factor in in their um, change. But there are thousands of other things that didn't take a revelation to change, right? Or, or if it did, it wasn't a public revelation or or whatever that just change as 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 things change over time. Um, and so, uh, and actually, interestingly, I put interracial marriage in this category because in 1978, the same uh, issue of the church news that published the revelation ending the ban on on priesthood for for black men said, but we still prohibit interracial marriage. You know, and, and so even the revelation <laughs> didn't change that doctrine. That doctrine just goes away eventually, right? Um, and uh, uh, but it didn't take a revelation at all to change it. So. And the revelation didn't change it. So I think that we have to, we also, I also want to lower the stakes for change as not necessarily needing to be dependent on revelation because there are all of these other precedents for non-revelatory changes that just, they just change. Right. And I think some of the biggest changes happen when the leaders just stop talking about something like the prohibitions against non-procreative sex between husband and wife. Somehow they just stop talking about it and now it's okay. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which is something that a lot of people might not realize. 
but if you permit non-procreative sex between husband and wife, you have attacked many of the foundational assumptions behind the exclusivity of the male-female partnership. Like, oh, the whole point of sex is to procreate, and if it's if you know, you've uh, questioned that assumption there. Yeah, yeah. And you know, speaking of change, there's this joke that I used to tell. Uh, um, <laughs> so help me, Derek. Uh, so, how many Mormons does it take to change a light bulb? Two, one to change the light bulb, and then another one to come along and say, "Well, that actually wasn't a change." <laughs> and I think that gets back to one of the strategic tools that we of Latter Day Saints have is to make sense of these changes by by saying, "Well." It really wasn't a change, or it's just a natural outgrowth of ongoing... Re- and you talk about ongoing revelation in your book. And I think, for me, whatever changes happen around LGBT issues in the future, it's probably going to make sense at the time, and it and it, it's going to not feel like a change. It's going to just seem like the next obvious and logical development, line upon line, of where we have been going and what what we've been doing all along. And I just think it will just make so much more sense. I don't think we'll have this massive rebellion and people will say, oh no, this proves that, you know, we got it wrong so long and everything's all wrong. I I honestly think as a faithful Latter-day Saint that when changes come, that they won't really exactly feel like a change in a threatening way. Mm. I think that's certainly possible. I don't know the future, right? And one of the restrictions of the historian's craft is that uh, we're, you know, we're not supposed to predict, right? I don't don't know what's going to happen. But I I think that there's some plausibility to to that story in part based on the history because you're right. We often just change our teaching in these subtle ways and then eventually they just go away, you know, and, and things that we once took as totally immutable just aren't anymore, right? Um, and so I, I think that I think that there is a lot of um, space for, yeah, first a kind of exactly as you said, a, a sort of softening of the teaching, and then uh, and then eventually it just kind of goes away, and then it sort of is replaced with a with a new alternative. What that process is going to look like, and whether there that that accommodation is going to happen in for same sex marriage, I don't know. Right, uh, I, we we may not be in a position to to do that, but right, yeah. uh, but maybe maybe I mean, what the next fifty years look like are you know uh, could have huge changes just as the last 50 years have i mean surprising changes people from 50 years ago would not recognize the church's teachings on relationships today i know and uh, that's one of the things i've noticed as a convert is that the mormonism that most people know and love is only about 40 or 50 years old and also the mormonism that most people hate if they know if they hate it is <laughs> is only one generation old and i think tapping into our history really gets into especially if you tap into the history of we don't know why this doctrine or policy is here. We don't know how it happened, and we don't even know that it's definitely from the Lord. I think that's one of the most powerful analytical tools that history can provide. Obviously, the famous article by Lester Bush in the seventies um, seemed to have that impact. It, it didn't. It, it there wasn't the kind of you know freaking out that our culture has about same sex intimacy and same sex relationships. And what changes that is this new category of homosexuality. 
and where that kind of takes off in popular, popular culture and especially in the church is in the 1950s. And that's why I start the story there with the big transition that happens is not necessarily, you know, they used to be same-sex relationships used to be permitted and now they're not or, or anything like that, but rather that there's a whole new framework, a whole new concept for thinking about same-sex relationships as uh, psychologically perverse. Homosexuality is a psychological category, right? And this new psychological framework for thinking about homosexuality, for thinking about same-sex relationships, dramatically transforms our culture overall, and certainly the church's culture. And suddenly, uh, same-sex intimacy of any form becomes evidence of a kind of um, psychological aberration uh, that, that needs to be cured in some way. And so it's that whole apparatus of, of, of thinking about same-sex relationships that um, really takes hold in the church after the 1950s that uh, we're still kind of in that moment, right? So I would want to, again, kind of historicize what we mean by same-sex relationships and what we mean by same-sex intimacy and how the church has thought about those things very differently in different time periods. That, that's right, way exactly. too complicated of an answer, but but um, yeah. But I think it just goes to show that these, uh, at least the, the contemporary question that we're wrestling with in the church, it's not like we've had the same question all along and had the same answers all along. It's been, like you said, a new question in, in each generation with, with an entirely different framework behind it. And I think that's very important to keep keep in mind it's not like we have a 200 year tradition of saying the exact same thing exactly exactly yeah and, and and so i think that you know one of the ways that all traditions all churches um sort of reason on theological matters is to look at the tradition right um we look at scripture we look at tradition we look at our experience we look at all these things and so a really good understanding of what the tradition is, is an essential component for any kind of theological reasoning. And in part where I hope to contribute to the conversation, again, I'm not trying to change the church or anything, but, but where I hope to contribute to the conversation is a, a more sophisticated understanding of our tradition as actually quite uh, uh, unstable on this issue. And you did say that uh, this is a you want a more sophisticated discussion. One, I, I will. I want to transition from that into saying that many of the people who started talking about your book well before it was even dropped, because apparently people have been getting their books before the before the supposed release date, is just how groundbreaking this uh, how groundbreaking this work is in conversations surrounding, uh, you know, uh, LGBTQ people in the church as well as the theology surrounding them. And perhaps the implications that such a work as yours is going to have on the conversation and the eventual social transitioning of the church into something that is more, dare I say, affirming. How do you feel about that, Taylor? I know that's not necessarily your intent, but how do you feel that your work is potentially contributing to something so significant? Yeah. Um... I, I certainly, I, I'm the worst person to ask <laughs> about, about what effect my work will have, right? I, I, don't, I don't know. I am, I am thrilled that people have found it to be um, mind-opening, I guess, to be uh, transformative in the way that they, uh, you know, many very, very smart people that have been thinking about this, I, I seem to be saying something new that they haven't 
thought of before or telling the story in a way that they hadn't yet yeah. heard before. Yeah. And, and I am, I am just overwhelmed with gratitude for that effect. Whether or not, again, I, I don't aspire to change the church. I, I want to just write a good book and tell a good story. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, if if there are changes that come, you know, I would be more than welcome to those, to, to seeing some some changes here. And if my book is gets to contribute to those things, then great. And if not, that's fine too. You know, I'm not the one running the church. I'm not the one who has the burden of making these decisions. So I'll let, uh, I'll leave that to, to others. Um, but I, I, I do hope that some of the simplistic ways that even that scholars have talked about this story, uh, that I can tell a, uh, a, a version of that history that, that needs to be wrestled with a little bit more in, in a little bit more complicated terms. What some people may have been understanding from uh, your book is that the fight against feminism is something that the church has given up on simply because they have found what in essence is a worse bad guy in homosexuality or transgender issues. However, some people would still argue that the church's very structure is a witness to the fact that uh, there's still, for lack of a better word, a war on feminism. And, you know, we've had this conversation earlier in our, you know, earlier in this conversation about how there is an interconnectedness of uh, LGBTQ issues and uh, issues surrounding gender, that they're very interconnected. And I've understood uh, the root cause of homophobia to be misogyny. So what would you say to those people who would say that the war, there, there is still a war against feminism within the church, even though your book may be understood to say that the church has, you know, released their hold on that fight. Yeah, I, this is a great observation. And it's one that that I hope that I um, can help advance the conversation here in, in the scholarship, especially because the scholarship as it, as it has existed has tended to either do, quote unquote, women's history or feminist analysis or do LGBT history, LGBT analysis. And I really want to emphasize that these are not um, un unconnected ideas in the way that the church has approached them because there's right. a sort of same fundamental teaching uh, at the root of both of their anti-feminism and their anti-homosexuality um, uh, politics and teachings. And, um, and But at the same time, I try to show that uh, the church is actually has relaxed some of its earlier anti-feminist teachings and has been more and more accommodating towards women. And that's not to say that we exist in a feminist paradise in the church at all, but it is to acknowledge that some of the older uh, uh, teachings of the, the patriarchal order, as it used to be called, have been weakened have been softened and it's what i call now a soft patriarchalism or a soft egalitarianism even um where the church hasn't fully uh uh you know given up on a kind of patriarchal model but it certainly isn't the kind of thing that our parents and definitely our grandparents might have experienced in the church they used to say if women go to work that's going to destroy the family and then they stopped teaching that because every woman went to work and, you know, and then they, they just can't teach it anymore. And then they started saying, well, okay, it's not women going to work. It's going to be same-sex couples. They're really going to destroy the family, right? Um, and so we see the ways in which those uh, those uh, 
ideas are, are interconnected, they're interlocking, but also that they can be pitted in opposition to one another. And where we see yeah. progress in one area often comes at the expense uh, of another. So I, I want to kind of show those things simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that, uh, you've, I'm sure you've seen reviews of your book. You've seen, you know, probably people respond to you directly. Are there any misconceptions about your book or criticisms of your book that you would like to take this time to address? Like, oh, the, no, I didn't really mean you to take it that way. Is, that, is there anything you want to say to that? I think it's been about from the date of that we're recording this, it's been about three weeks since the first person received their copy. And everybody since then seems to have been, you know, getting early release copies. And it seems to me that the people who were pre-ordering it, getting it in advance and the first to read it have been the most enthusiastic readers. I am extremely grateful that um, not only that people have been reading it, but that people have been talking about it. And uh, I'm thankful to have for, for you guys for having me on to talk a little bit more about it as well. I, I, I hope that it's a book that people find uh, meaningful. You talked about this uh, at the start of the uh, conversation, Taylor, about how there just seems to be always something there's always going to be more to be said. There's always going to be another project. I suppose I kind of have to ask, what's next for Dr. Taylor Petrie? <laughs> well, I, I can think if anybody wants ideas about what to write on this topic or what to research on this topic, I've got all of these dead ends, or not dead ends for me, but things that I, I just couldn't take on that I hope that somebody else will. But um, what I have been working on in the meantime well, this is, a, this is a larger story. I'll just back it up a little bit. When I originally proposed this project um, uh, for uh, uh, the research that I was going to do when I was at Harvard was it was going to be half history, half sort of deconstructing the history as, as I've done, and then half constructive theology. And um, wisely, many, many, many people told me, you can't do both of those in one book. You, those need to be separate projects. So I, I kind of cut out all of the theology, the constructive elements of, of the, that had been originally a part of the book. And I have uh, uh, kind of been tinkering with those in the background. So I don't know if, it's gonna, if I'm going to publish it or not, but I've been at least working out my own constructive theology here uh, to see to show more what's possible. And that's to go back to, uh, you know, the, the article that you mentioned that I wrote nearly 10 years ago now towards a post-heterosexual Mormon oh, theology. I started that project Jeez. as I thought this needs to be a theological project. And, and part of my heart is still in uh, the sort of theological world. So I, I, I'm kind of tinkering with some ideas on, on that front as well. You know, I have a question about the title of that article because, like, I've been doing queer stuff for a long time. I don't know what post-heterosexual means. <laughs> and because I could understand, you know, post-heteronormative, post-heterocentric, but post-heterosexual, is that imagining a society where we all get beyond heterosexuality? Because I like that idea. But what, is it, what did you mean by your choice of post-heterosexual rather than some other term? I see heterosexuality as a as a um, epistemic regime, as a particular way of defining uh, of defining relationships that is new, um, and, and so I really resist the trans historical essentialization of heterosexuality as something which always existed and always will exist, mm -hmm. and um, so it's it's deconstructive, not just of uh, a, a sort of 
pro homosexuality in the church, but it's deconstructive of the very binary of homo, homo and heterosexuality as categorizations. Um, and so the post heterosexual part um, uh, is to is to sort of get past these as categories themselves. So that's that's maybe what I'm what I'm trying to go for. And I've noticed that too with the construction of the Western gay identity in the past generation is that it's very much a reaction to homophobia at its kernel. Like, uh, in many ways, the modern gay identity, Western gay identity, is like a pearl around the irritant of a, of, of a sand that gets it into an oyster, and you make this beautiful thing around it. But at the heart of the Western gay identity, especially the whole gay pride thing, is in response to a contingency that didn't even need to be there. Right? I don't even think we would have these terms if we didn't have homophobia. And so homophobia is at the heart of the gay identity in a very ironic way. Uh, anything else, Taylor, that you would like people to know about your book or about your work or about what you hope for them to gain from it before we sign off today? Um, well, we, we've talked probably about like one-tenth of what the book is about. <laughs> and so I, I, I hope that people feel like they have a good sort of entree into it, you know, but certainly we are just scratching the surface of, I think, what, what is in there um, and what I hope that, uh, that, that can continue to kind of transform the ways that people think about these topics. So uh, I, I, you know, I, I hope that people have enjoyed our conversation. I certainly have, uh, but it's not a substitute for the book. It is not. It right. quite involved. Yeah, I agree with that. So with that, everybody, this has been Dr. Taylor Petrie, author of the book Tabernacles of Clay. We definitely encourage you guys to uh, go out and get it. It's available on Amazon as well as UNC, UNC Press. Is that the other place people can get it from? You can get it at most booksellers, but it is, I think there's a 40% discount right now at the publisher's website, which is uncpress.com. uncpress.com. And uh, again, this is just for pre-order. Like these, this book is not even technically released yet, but through some kind of sorcery, some people have managed to get the book by this point and have positive things to say about it. But you can pre-order the book from, you said, uncpress.com. Yep. Yep. And you can also do it on uh, Amazon. So we encourage you to go out and get it. This is not a paid advertisement, even though we are part of Dialogue Podcast Network. Taylor did not pay us to do this. We are literally just <laughs> trying to get as much information out there on this subject. And you guys know that we love this work. And Taylor just happens to be doing some great work in that field. So uh, go out and get this book because it's apparently changing lives right now. And it could save somebody in your immediate circle. So get the book. Yeah, get the book. Just like I did. Be like Derek. Be like Derek. Derek is smart. All right. Thank you, uh, Taylor, for your time today. We really do appreciate it. And we've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. We'll hope to have you back. We're excited to see what you do. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure.